You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. The sermon text for this morning is Matthew 9, verses 18 through 34. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and take your seats, please. Grab your Bible and turn to that passage, if you would, in Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. Once you get there, we're going to pray. Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. Let me pray for our time. Lord, would you please now come and meet us, as you so often do. Would you open up our eyes to see Christ for who he is, that we might be changed into his image, that we might respond to him with saving faith, grasping on to all that he is and what he has done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is the expected 
and yet unexpected Messiah. Meeting him, coming into contact with him, is like meeting someone that you thought was really serious only and then finding out that they're actually very funny. Sometimes this happens with people in church. You, that person's really serious. I hear how they teach, and then you meet them, and they're kind of funny or they're a little bit strange, and it's, oh, that was unexpected. It's like getting married to someone whom you know and you love and you adore and you understand and then finding out along the way that, man, there was so much more that I had to learn about this person, good and bad, in marriage. With Jesus, it's not that way. But he's the expected and yet unexpected Messiah. Matthew has been showing us, if we would have been going through this book like you're used to going through, you're going through Acts right now. If we'd have started in the beginning and been working through, we'd have seen that Jesus was the expected one that his people, Israel, were waiting for. He was born in the right place and he had the right lineage, but he was also from this place called Nazareth. And Matthew makes a big point to say he was a Nazarene. That means he was a country boy from the rural parts, the unacceptable place. The place he grew up in was unexpected and unimportant. He came from obscurity, not royalty. He was born lowly, not in power. And he began proclaiming a new kingdom for all kinds of people, not just the worthy. He proclaimed a kingdom for the sick, for sinners, for lepers, the outcasts, and people who were suffering. Jesus was a very important person, right? What do important people usually do? They go and hang around with other important people. If the president came to this fine city, would he talk to you? Would you even see him? Would you go? Uh, You wouldn't. Important people come to important people. But Jesus is expected in the sense that he's fulfilling all of the scripture, and yet he's unexpected. He should have been expected in these ways, too, if they would have read the scripture rightly. But this caused, this issue, this dissonance, caused the religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees, who had big-time wrong expectations about what Jesus was supposed to be like. They ended up angry, disappointed, and then murderous in their thoughts, and always against Christ. But the lame, on the other hand, leapt for joy, and the mute saying his praise. But what about you? What are your assumptions of this Jesus that we've read about in Matthew? You have them. Assumptions, I mean. Perceptions of him. And they matter. They matter not because you can define who he is by some innate power within you. That's not true. But they matter because the way that you see him will dictate the way that you follow him. And respond to him. What do you assume about Jesus? What kind of faith do you have? Can he forgive all my sin? Is he able to redeem my whole life and make me whole completely? Is there a place for me in his great kingdom? Will he end up disappointing me like so many others have already? 
How do I know that I can trust him when everything in my life seems to be going backwards? What assumption of Christ do you have? Our answers to these questions are inseparable from our view of Christ. And what I mean by that is that picture of him that you hold in your mind's eye. The sum total of all that you expect that he is and what he will do that you hold in your heart This vision of who Jesus is will dictate your response to him. Again, not because you have power to define him. You don't. But the way you see him is the way you respond to him. It is the way that you follow him. There is a direct connection. And so I want you to see Christ as he is. Not as you've always assumed, not as you maybe dream about, but truly as he is. And the way to do that, you already know, is to listen to his words and observe his works. And so right now, this morning, that's what we're going to do. And there's nothing better that we might focus on right now or in an hour or next year or for all of eternity, observing and gazing at Christ. There's nothing else that will give you benefit or build you up or increase your confidence more than this, seeing Jesus. So in Matthew, at this point in the book, the flow, Matthew has just been demonstrating the authority of Jesus in his word. Maybe you're familiar there, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's chapter 5 through 7, is Matthew giving us a picture of how authoritative it is when Jesus speaks. He says things and people say, nobody else talks like this. We don't, we've not heard things like this before. He's not like one of our teachers. In 5 through 7, it's the authority of Jesus in his word. But in our section, which is chapters 8 and 9, form a section about the authority of Jesus in his works. So you have his authority in speech, his authority in his deeds. So that's where we fall here in chapter 9. And in this section, starting in chapter 8, verse 1, and going all the way to the end of chapter 9, there are two big picture conclusions that Matthew would like you and I to um, come to regarding Jesus. I want to give you those two big picture conclusions before we get into our text. The first one is this. Jesus is the Messiah with authority over sickness, disease, nature, and demons who cares for and saves the sinful, the sick, the scared, and the suffering by faith. This is who Jesus is. The one with authority over all these things who's coming after the sinful and the sick and the scared. And all they have in common is faith. That's the first conclusion. And the second one that Matthew wants us to come to is this. Because of that fact, I believe he can save me too. I know that I need him, and I want to follow him, even though it means leaving everything else behind. Because in chapter 8, we have the cost of following Jesus, people saying, I want to follow you, and he's like, I have nowhere to lay my head. I want to follow you, but I want to bury my father. He says, leave that alone. You follow me. And so, this is who Christ is, and because of it, I want to follow him too. Those are the two conclusions that Matthew is driving us toward. Now, ramping up into our section, 
We've already seen in chapter 8 a leper cleansed. We've seen a paralyzed servant be healed from afar. Peter's mother-in-law had a a fever that was taken from her. Jesus was on the stormy sea, and it came up into the boat, and he said, peace be still, and there was stillness. There was a bunch of demons that were in two men, and they were cast into a herd of pigs, and they ran off into the sea. And a paralytic whose sins are forgiven walks. And then we've seen Jesus lay out the cost of following him, and he's clarified that the, the direction of his ministry is toward sinners not the righteous. Look at chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Just for context, verse 11, he says to the Pharisee, or, um, and when the Pharisees saw what he was doing with tax collectors and sinners, rather, in verse 11, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Not for those who are well, but those who are sick. All of this is demonstrating Jesus' unique authority to pour out the new wine of his kingdom of mercy. And that's verses 14 through 17. And there we are, verse 18, what we read just previously. So with all of that in mind, I want to show you three final pictures of the authority of Jesus as chapter 9 moves forward. Three final pictures of the authority of Jesus. The first picture is this. With Jesus, death is but sleep. Look at verse 18. While he was saying these things, he's teaching in verses 16 and 17 about the new wine of his kingdom. While he was saying these things, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rode and followed him with his disciples. And then there's this interruption, which we'll cover. And then a little bit bit later on, Verse 23, and when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping, and they laughed at him. And when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. So the first picture of the authority of Jesus here is, with Jesus, death is but sleep. This is a familiar pattern that we see with this ruler coming to Christ on behalf of his daughter. Someone in great need comes to Jesus for the impossible. In chapters 8 and 9, everyone is bringing their tragedy right to the feet of Jesus. How will he respond? What is he like? Notice how the ruler isn't turned away. He's interrupting Jesus' important teaching about his kingdom and what it's like. And then he comes in and Jesus goes and follows him. He's not turned away. You see that? Notice the confidence of the ruler. This is his faith, even though it's not explicitly said in the text. My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. With Jesus, death is but sleep, but wait. There's an interruption. 
a story within a story. We're going to have to put that one on hold, okay? Number one, that first demonstration of Jesus' authority, that picture. The second one is this, coming right next in verse 20, and behold, something new is happening, with Jesus, incurable conditions are healed. So we'll pause our discussion about death and sleep to consider this next story with Jesus incurable conditions are healed look at verse 20 again and behold he said a woman who had a suffering from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment for she said to herself if I only touch his garment I will be made well Jesus turned and seeing her said take heart daughter your faith has made you well And instantly, the woman was made well. With Jesus, incurable conditions are healed. This woman, with this discharge, a menstrual discharge of blood for 12 years, would have been disallowed from worship and fellowship because of her constant state of being ritually unclean in accordance with the Mosaic law. What does that mean? No Jewish scribe or Pharisee would wish to go near her because that would make them unclean. She knows this. She's existed for these 12 long years in this lonely state. Unwelcome, unwanted, unclean. Maybe you've felt like that before. She knows all of this and yet senses because of what she knows of Christ See, the report's been getting out a little bit that this is the man who's a miracle worker. This is the man who cares about sinners. This is the man who cares about lepers. I don't know what she knows, but she senses that if she should, could just get a touch of Jesus' clothing, that everything would change for her. What does she bring to the table? You know, Jesus is a king. Uh, He's going to be coronated as king in a a different way, but he's the king, and he's setting up his kingdom. He's looking for people to bring in. What does she bring to the table? What kind of place can she hope to have in the kingdom of God's beloved son? Why would Jesus even bother with her? She brings nothing. This is a very familiar theme if we'd read through chapter 8 and 9 of Matthew. Everybody brings their nothing to Jesus, hoping, knowing, believing that they might receive everything that they need. And then what we see here in this story is that in an instant, upon touching, the authority of Jesus is unleashed by the smallest exercise of her faith. How do you suppose God will respond to your exercise even of what you considered meager faith. What is your assumption of the kind of prayer, the kind of hard attitude, the kind of manner that you must come to Christ with in order to find deliverance and help? How developed is this woman's theology about anything? We don't know. Here's what we know. She said to herself, verse 21, if I only touch his garment, I knew about Christ. That's real faith, though small, exercised in the real Jesus right there. She knows what she needs and believes he can rescue her. 
and notice how he responds. We've seen this before. On the boat, in the stormy sea, he says to the disciples, take heart. Look what he says to her in verse 22. Turning and seeing her, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Take heart. It's, it's something like, uh, be of good courage. Be confident. He's giving her encouragement here. The ones who have faith, even if meager, even if seemingly small, Jesus gives courage to them. And then imagine the relief in her body and soul at the word of Christ. Take heart, daughter. This woman who has not been paid attention to, who knows that she's dirty, the Christ, this Jesus, daughter is what he calls her. Take heart. You are well. This is the relief that only Jesus can provide. Only he can bear the burden of your broken body and your broken spirit. He alone is the healer of your life, demonstrated here by his work for this woman. Now, within this story, I think we find two lessons regarding Christ. Two lessons in this story, within a story. The first lesson is this. This story shows us the mercy of Jesus. If you look at 9.13 that we read earlier, he's saying, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And then in verse 27, in the section that follows this, Jesus is going on, and these two blind men cry out, have mercy on us, son of David. This story, in between those two texts, shows us something of the mercy of Jesus. Let me illustrate it to you by what doesn't happen here. Remember, what's Jesus doing? Our first point was that with Jesus, death is but sleep. He's on his way to raise the dead. This is important business, kingdom business. And then there's this lady who's unclean, trying to touch him in the crowd. What happens when people try to touch you when you're doing something unimportant? especially children, like the dishes, or trying to leave the house, or trying to just sit. <laughs> How unlike us Jesus is. What doesn't happen is important here. She's unclean, she's untouchable, and she's trying to touch the Messiah. She's there in her ceremonial filth, grasping at the unattainable purity of the Son of the Most High, and he turns to her, and he doesn't say this, do you have any idea who I am? Don't you know the Mosaic laws about your uncleanness and my cleanness and how you've now ruined that for me? I know who you are. I know what you are. I'm going to raise the dead. Leave me alone. I hope you can't imagine Jesus saying that. He doesn't. No, you see, Jesus desires mercy much more than sacrifice, which would include the necessary things are for her ritual cleansing if she could be healed of the blood. He desires mercy for her right now. And he has eyes of mercy for her even when she interrupts him, even when she touches him. This 12 years of being disfellowshipped, unwanted and unwelcome, all pass away when Jesus turns to her and says, take heart, daughter, 
Jesus is a merciful Savior. Secondly, here's another lesson. This story teaches us about faith and salvation. It's important to notice that faith begins with a recognition of great need. This woman knows her need. Twelve years, bleeding. She knows it, okay? Faith begins with a right um, acceptance of what really is wrong. How, How bad we have sinned. How much we are separated from God. How much we need Him. Faith must begin with an absolute right assessment of our great need for God. But look what her faith says. Her faith says, He can heal me. But it doesn't only say, He can heal me. He sa- it says, He will heal me. Look at verse 21. If I only touch His garment, I will be made well. You see, faith is confidence. It's not nuanced or hedging against possible failure. It's not a wise investment strategy. To believe Jesus is to say with certainty, He will heal me. He will raise me. He will forgive all my sin. He will make me whole. This woman's faith saved her from her sickness put her back into good standing with the Jewish community and provided her total wholeness again. And your faith, if you've exercised it, has put you in good standing with God. And just like her discharge of blood was healed, so will all of your maladies be taken away. Now this phrase translated, your faith has made you well, is actually the phrase saved you. It's used other places in the Gospels, and here it's translated made you well because of the obvious physical sickness, but it's the phrase, has saved you. In Luke 7.50, this phrase is used to describe the sinful woman from the city, you remember her, who weeps and anoints Jesus' feet, whom Simon the Pharisee says, I know who that is, get away. And Jesus accepts her and says, your faith has saved you. This is interesting. Jesus came to save sinners. And while the obvious and immediate meaning here in this text is that the physical problem of this woman has been remedied, there is something more that I think Christ wants to see by using these words and Matthew recording them for us. This does not mean that we believe in health and wealth now, but that we believe in total salvation of our sins and our souls and our bodies in the resurrection that's coming soon. There is a fullness to the gospel that includes your whole self, which means your body. Do you have physical distress, illness, pain, decay? Each one of you, you're dying. You're decaying. And unless Christ comes, your body will give up. Does Jesus care about that? Yes, he does. He will make good on his promise to raise you imperishable. And right now, even as you wait for this not yet but expected resurrection, your heart of faith may grasp on totally to this same promise. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. 
not your performance, not your cleanliness, not your purity, but your faith. It is just as true now as it will ever be. You will be made well in Christ forever. No sin, no more pain, no more sorrow. That is the truth. And that is what we are grasping onto with our faith. And that was quite an interruption, wasn't it? So, with Jesus, incurable conditions are healed, but what we said first was with Jesus, death is but sleep. And now we're back to that. As he arrives, look at verse 23. There's a commotion. There's flute players. I don't really think flute players and commotion usually, but that's what's going on here. Flute players and a commotion. What's happening is that there are professional mourners who are already assembled and wailing. This is a Jewish custom. They've been purchased by the family. Can you imagine doing that? But this is what they did. They would buy uh, flute players to play the dirge, and uh, they would have people wailing and mourning so that it was obvious that they are sad and that they're sorrowful. Jesus walked into a funeral service. Soon this girl would be in the grave. Yet Jesus says, verse 24, Go away. She is asleep. And what do they do? They laughed. They laughed at Christ. The mourners. The commotion makers. We've been paid, haven't we? They could say. Aren't we here? Don't you see what's happening? What kind of reality do you live in, Jesus? She's dead. Go away. She's asleep. The funeral crowd is just like Sarah, Abraham's wife. You remember what she did? God promised that she would bear a son in her old old age, and she laughed. She laughed the laugh of unbelief. They're just like her because they do not believe God. 